Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of The Future of Finance. My guest today is Joseph Weinberg, the co-founder of Shift Network, the blockchain-based trust network that focuses on identity. Passionate about advancing the mass adoption of crypto assets and blockchain, Joseph has developed strong views on how the blockchain industry should be regulated. He was formerly an advisor to the OECD and the Financial Stability Board, as well as to governments and regulated bodies around the world. Joseph, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Dominic. Pleasure to be here. As I indicated a moment ago, your stated mission for a while now has been to bring cryptocurrency and decentralized finance, DeFi, into the regulated arena. When, I mean, it's become quite a popular uh, uh, idea now, but when did you start thinking that way and why did you think that way? Yeah, uh, so I've been in the digital asset ecosystem since late 2010, um, way before DeFi existed. And I was a very early Bitcoin miner um, when the only thing there was was Bitcoin. And then, of course, Ethereum came along and and uh, the story unfolds um, from there. Um, and I'd say into early 2016, what we had recognized was that you know, we needed to look at these like regulatory layers in a more, you know, serious fashion. Um, and it was really about like, how do you accelerate or or, or, or uh, accelerate um, the the advancement of the ecosystem? Because, there, you know, there's a, a threshold between, you know, where the ecosystem is today and where the bridge needs to be kind of, you know, gapped, if you will, in order to make that possible. So the idea started in, I'd say, late 2016. Um, and and have kind of progressed as the industry has kind of developed, um, you know, over the last five, six, seven years. Um, so it's been a pretty early topic. The question has just been like, at what point in stage do things like DeFi become relevant specifically versus centralized, you know, finance exchanges and so on and so forth? Well, I'll come back to that point about centralized exchanges, but just in terms of developing the ecosystem, as you put it, how important to your thinking at that relatively early stage was attracting institutional money as opposed to retail money? It's a really good question. Um, we've always kind of tried to approach it as institutional. Uh, I think over like the last eight years, we've always talked about like the day the institutions will come, um, you know, and it's always been kind of a narrative. Uh, I do think it's been critical though. And, and I think that it's important not because of the money that it brings, although it does bring us, you know, orders of magnitude larger scale into markets like the DeFi market or or just Bitcoin or Ethereum in general. But it's more about like how do you provide and allow institutions to give more access to a wider group, retail as well, right? Because they are really the gatekeepers. The financial institutions control the majority of the, you know, the savings accounts and checkings accounts and investment products that people use today. Um, so, you know, getting this right is, I think, the most important thing to the mass adoption question, which everyone's kind of looking at and trying to figure out. You, you mentioned centralized finance a minute ago. We talk a lot these days about convergence between DeFi and CeFi. Now, can we have all the benefits of DeFi with all the regulatory protections of CeFi? In other words, can we have our cake and eat it? Uh, I noticed that Binance had come up with this term CDFi uh, <laughs> to <laughs> depict the, the convergence. Uh, uh, is, is that a... a um, an exotic animal designed by a committee, or is it actually possible? Can we have our cake and eat Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that we've been working pretty heavily on. And, and it's something that, that uh, one of the product teams that are working on Shift should, you know, be releasing some things later this year, early next year. 
uh, to try to actually answer that question. But I think we can get most, uh, most of the benefits. And I think like the question becomes, what are the benefits, right? The most important things I think in the context of DeFi, what make it interesting are of course, open, you know, coordination, the ability for anyone to come in, anyone to deposit assets, anyone to kind of share in this, you know, financial uh, system based on smart contracts in the case of DeFi specifically. Um, but um, but it's also really what uh, a concept called composability, right? This idea that assets are composable. Uh, it's what allows for things like flash loans and the ability for liquidity to move so quickly around these different kind of, you know, new financial systems, if you will call them that. Um, and I think that's very, very powerful. And the question is, you know, can we enable that? The answer, I think, is yes. The reality is that we might have a little bit more checks and balances in terms of identifying who are the users and who are the counterparties involved. Um, and in that sense, we do lose a little bit. Um, but I do think we can maintain most of the privacy advantages as well. It's just a bit of a more controlled space. But I would also say, Dominic, that like, it's not like, uh, it's okay to have two different worlds, right? Like we do not have to sacrifice the world that is fully open, fully pseudo anonymous uh, for a fully regulated one. You know, there there is a way to kind of make these two worlds, I think, coexist. And the question is just, can we enable the coexistence and the enablement of the other one quick enough uh, before regulators kind of come at the permissionless one entirely? Um, that's more of, I think, the regulatory question today. Well, flash loans, which you mentioned, uh, are quite a good example of uh, an idea, a successful experiment, which has led to some issues uh, in the industry. Mm -hmm. And whether or not regulation could fix that, uh, I'm sure that institutional money in particular would be encouraged if they felt that uh, innovations of that kind were regulated in some way. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here that if, you know, we, when we think about the convergence, kind of bringing cryptocurrency and DeFi inside this regulatory perimeter. And it looks like cryptocurrency and DeFi are going to come inside the, the perimeter now over the next few years. Tokens are already there. They're kind of regulated by existing securities laws in, in most of the major markets. So is, what, is, the, is the future that you imagine going to be one in which cryptocurrency and DeFi start to get regulated by the existing laws and regulations, or are we going to have to start creating new laws and new regulations? And I ask you that question in the knowledge that here in the UK, for example, it's become obvious that uh, if we are to, uh, to create an infrastructure in which cryptocurrency and, and DeFi tokens can be transferred successfully between wallets on a blockchain network, there is actually going to have to be a change in, in primary law already done that in some jurisdictions like Luxembourg. But if you look on a global scale, do you think that is always going to be a necessity or can existing regulations accommodate what's going on in cryptocurrency and DeFi? I think that parts of it can. So, you know, the, the first regulations that we actually wrote in the world that I kind of helped co-author were in Bermuda. Um, and this was back in 2018. Um, and what our goal was, was to try to figure out, could we do just that? Could we take, you know, a framework of common law or commonwealth law rather, um, which, you know, circulates many countries in the world today, like the UK and Canada here. Um, and can we effectively piggyback off of the way that their existing regulatory frameworks work 
but actually build regulations towards how the industry functions and how it operates today. Um, and I think that the only way forward is effectively to do that in similar models because, um, you know, the old Steve Jobs saying or someone before him, you can't, you know, fit a, a square peg in a round hole. Uh, I think that does apply. And regulators are not only aware of that today, but they feel that in, in, incredibly so. Um, it, it's a situation where, uh, it's not even so much the laws that they put in place. It's it's the reality that that the regulations almost need to be digitized, or they need to be almost you know smart contract enabled in some way in order for them to get a handle on this. And I think the last piece is that because everything is so globally distributed, there is no jurisdiction in a world where jurisdiction doesn't exist, like on the internet. How do you have jurisdictional law? Right. So I do think that like new formulations and new structures need to be created, um, you know, short of that, at the very least, jurisdictions themselves can implement, you know, extensions and expansions and reinventions of of what they have today and what they've created so far. Right. Um, but but I do think that, you know, rapid transformation just helps the overall societal advancement, uh, if you will. Now, when regulators look at cryptocurrency and, and DeFi, the first thing which seems to uh, cross their mind is that there's uh, a long, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better, history of, of various financial crimes and scams, defalcations of, of various sorts, uh, each of which has its own peculiarities. It's very difficult to get accurate uh, price information to, to feed oracles. It's very difficult to work out what some of these tokens are trying to do, even from the industry has made progress, uh, but it's still quite difficult to, to work out what a particular token is aiming to do and how to get a price for it. And then lastly, you've got these governance issues with these with these DAOs, which seem very susceptible to being taken over by a small group of, of insiders, if you like. So regulators are facing a whole host of, of, of unfamiliar issues, and they must be in a very difficult position trying to balance, you know, letting the innovation go on, but also trying to protect consumers, what would your advice be as to how to make cryptocurrency and DeFi compliant? What is it, what is it going to look like, that compliant DeFi cryptocurrency industry? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I also, I think, grew up in the part of the industry, you know, when I was first entering crypto, it would be like, if this is the wild, wild west, then that was like, you know, the chaotic, uh, yeah. you know, something beyond that, I think, in many respects. And so, I kind of look at this and always have viewed it as creative destruction. Um, it is a, a cyclical advancement, right? Like we learn from the mistakes that we make. We may repeat them in certain aspects and certain functions in certain ways. Um, but the reality is, is that the outcomes every, you know, one to two years or one to two kind of development or, or technology cycles um, ends up becoming that the lessons of the past are reinforced in the infrastructure that's developed in this industry. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important kind of feedback loop. It's kind of like a, a you know, almost like a virus, right? It's, 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 it's kind of constantly looking and figuring out how to multiply, but also at the same time, how to like become better and stronger. Uh, and I mean that in a good sense, of course, in the case of, of this discussion. Um, and so like, I think that you know, as we learn from the mistakes that are happening, listen, there's always going to be bad people. There's 
bad people in traditional financial markets, you know, bad people, you know, uh, tools don't hurt people, people hurt people, let's put it that way, right? And I don't think it's the technology's fault, it's 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 how you use it, right? And and use of something is very hard to regulate, I think, uh, or how it is used uh, in an open environment. But I think like, you know, to get right to the point is that, you know, we can put in pseudo open safeguards to prevent things like this. And I think that's kind of where the industry is going. Like we can have open compliance layers and open compliance frameworks that do coexist in all of these smart contract systems. Um, And I think that's like a very important concept is like we can opt into compliance um, in a world where we choose to as users. Um, And we can also do that in a way that uh, is pretty much a um, a non-friction filled experience like the traditional world might be today. And so I think that like as you start developing these infrastructures and deploying them and, and allowing the industry to again kind of go through that metamorphosis phase with this new type of infrastructure, you know, regulation becomes a fabric inside of, you know, this wider kind of, uh, you know, a cosmos of, of uh of new experiences and, and new technologies broadly. Um, but I do think it will happen. I think it's inevitable. I think most founders recognize it today. The question for, 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 for developers and founders today is just how do we do it? Like we're just, we are just as confused as regulators. I think that's the answer most uh, technologists would say. We forget, of course, that the traditional financial services industry is also full of bad people and doesn't have a particularly strong track record in keeping them out of its uh, out of its systems, you say there are bad people everywhere. Do you think it prompts a question in my mind? This this observation you made. Do you think that the ability of the uh, the cryptocurrency DeFi industries to iterate their way to better and better solutions to the problems they encounter day to day means that actually it could potentially be more successful at excluding bad people in the long run than the traditional system? I, I think that by nature, it kind of has to, right? Like, I again, I kind of look at it as like, um, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, a virus and an antivirus, right? It's kind of like, you know, the antibodies continuously attack. And, you know, um, you know, we kind of look and, and we watch this kind of organism constantly adapt to its environment. But at the same time, we're also watching its improvement, right? Over time, that improvement cycle continues to do things like, optimized to eliminate bad actors, you know, uh, hack capabilities, you know, ways in which people even find and identify these types of uh, uh, projects that may end up hurting consumers. You know, I think it's just like the nature of these types of open source systems and markets is that, yes, in fact, that's the case. Um, You know, I I, I think, again, there will always be people finding new ways to, you know, exploit things and and, and extract value from people uh, in, in, in nefarious ways. But but I do think that we can build safeguards a lot faster, right? Uh, and I think that even over the last one or two years, you know, those these markets have kind of proven that they can be self-sufficient without the need for, you know, regulatory intervention to the point where, uh, you know, we have to stop a, a market like a DeFi exchange or something like that. Um, and I think that's very powerful, right? To say that this these systems can actually self-operate and self-function the more things we build around them, of course, the more capabilities they have, the better they become for users. But it's still the first inning in a, you know, a much longer technology trajectory. So, 
So if we're agreed that cryptocurrency and DeFi are on this long march inside the regulatory perimeter in multiple jurisdictions around the world, what does that mean for, for shift uh, as opposed to what it means for regular? What's the opportunity for you? Yeah, I mean, we've kind of looked at it as like, you know, we were very early adopters in the ecosystem. And what we kind of recognized early on, as I had mentioned, is like no one is looking at regulations. Right. And this was at a time where no one could really even speak the word regulations very well. Um, you know, I think that we kind of tried to build for the the 10 year vision and, and, and far into the future. Uh, and our roadmap, I think, kind of reflects that. Right. It's like we know that there will come this time where centralized entities will be regulated. Travel rule will be kind of become that place where the most complexity occurs, and and that's where we've kind of focused in, in one team that's working on top of the the shift protocol. Um, and uh, as we kind of look into the next kind of phases, you know, what does DeFi look like? What do NFTs look like? What does what does the concept of a source of funds requirement look like in the world where, you know, money is flying all over these blockchains and protocols? Because in, in the banking system, the, the ability to prove who is the source of funds is actually the key question in compliance. And that leads to sanctions and all, everything else. Uh, so Shift kind of plays this role where, you know, we've, you know, focused on, you know, development teams focusing on a few of these core areas. You know, we wish that there were more people building in this regulatory, you know, uh, segment. Uh, we kind of kind of be, seem to be the lone rangers in most cases, at least at the level in which uh, the, these teams are developing today across shift. But that's OK. Um, you know, could be worse. Uh, but we do really see this world where, you know, the end state is one where, you know, we do not bifurcate parts of the industry. So. All of these ecosystem remains open. We have these kind of regulatory and compliance layers that operate across all systems, all protocols, all different contracts, uh, all different centralized entities, um, you name it. And we have this kind of identity and kind of compliance enforcement layer that uh, really kind of almost acts as regulation as a protocol, um, but does so in a way that's you know very much in tune with how the ecosystem works. Um, I think that's kind of the end state for where Shift is, is this kind of complementary layer for everyone. So um, that's what we're building towards, at least. One of the things that strikes me when I look at how traditional financial services are regulated is it's a, it's a very complex accretion of different rules and laws and regulations over very long periods of time. And when you start to try and analyze what the objectives were, whether those objectives are being achieved now. Uh, you start to ask yourself questions like, well, what are they trying to regulate here? Is it, the, is it the entity issuing this security? Is it the entity trading this security? Is it the security itself? Is it the investors? Is it who is it? Is it the distributors? So you end up with a, um, a, a complex and slightly dysfunctional network of, of rules and regulations, which don't always interact very successfully which probably helps to account for why regulation isn't always very effective, uh, even in the traditional thing. Can those, can those sort of, are there, are there principles, rules of thumb, if you like, like it's always better to regulate an issuer, it's always better to regulate an instrument, it's always better to regulate the people in a market. Are there rules of thumb that you can bring to advising governments that you're talking to about how to go about this? Just first principles, if you like. Yeah, I mean, we do actively advise um, several um, on independent kind of capacity and more from just an education perspective. But I think like the, the core principles that we really try to get across uh, and it depends on the area. Right. These are very different, you know, 
the travel rule is very different from DeFi and, you know, tokenization and NFTs and so on and so forth. So it really depends where it is. But um, I think the reality is, as most regulators know, in most circumstances, other than a governance one that we're seeing in the United States today is, is that like, it has to be on the issuer. And yes, the question then becomes who is the issuer, right? In the context of a DeFi DAO or a DEX, like that's not very clear. Um, but regulated intermediaries are what the FATF and, and these and and uh, you know these AML and CFT bodies are designed for. Um, I don't think you can depart from that. I don't think that you can start you know going after and regulating individuals that way. I think that becomes very hard. Um, I think in some cases you can look at common enterprise and say, okay, you know, everyone here in a DAO may be working as, you know, uh, an unstructured common enterprise. That's something that the United States has kind of tried to approach DAOs with lately. Um, in that case, I think that it's like, you know, have like have legal protections in place. Like even DAOs, whether you're foundations, whether you're DAOs, if you're DeFi, like it's always good to still, you know, put in legal safeguards. Like that's just what you should do, I think, as a, you know, a participant, no matter who you are. Um, and I think like regulators really need to start looking at the question around like, um, you know, who do we who do we approach and who do we not? Um, and also towards new technologies. I think that they're at a breaking point today where they're realizing that in order for regulations to work, there needs to be supplementary regulatory technology to actually make them work. Um, enforcement is almost impossible otherwise. Um, and so I think that's really where like the, the shift will, no pun intended, will start to come is in this realization that like regulators need to be backed up with technologies that can make you know the regulation successful um so you know don't be shy to looking at you know partnering in new ways of of using technologies to your advantage i think that's the point just to be clear you're talking there about reg tech and soup tech you're not talking about regulating technology right no 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 i'm not talking about regulation okay. yes yeah, reg tech uh you know smart contracts and other types of things i'm saying from the ecosystem i think that they need to start looking at how do we put regulation into the world in which they're trying to regulate. That's kind of what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about digital identity in a minute. Before I do, just one last question uh, on crypto and 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 DeFi. Uh, the, both those markets have undergone a sharp re-rating since the autumn of, of last year. Has that changed anything in the minds of regulators or in your view about the need to regulate these industries? So when I first saw a Bitcoin market, it was like, no market was maybe six cents and it went to $30 and then it crashed down, you know, to about maybe a dollar. Then it went up to $200, then down to $80. Then up. these, these are cyclical, you know, this is the first inning. And I think regulators are, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum have taught regulators um, one thing, which is this never goes away. Um, and so although values might be suppressed and we're going through this ne next kind of innovation development cycle, the things that come out of the next kind of, you know, bull market, if you want to call it that, uh, the innovation that's built today will be at least a one to five, 10 order magnitude, you know, sizable difference. And, and, and every regulator that we speak with today is of that belief. So I don't think there's a question today that, you know, the size of DeFi makes a difference in opinion. It's it's here to stay just like everything else before it. Um, and we got to figure this out pretty quickly. OK, so no regulator is in, in your experience is saying, well, this will all be gone in 
two or three years time. So let's not waste time on how to regulate it. Absolutely not. I think they would be foolish to do so. And, and I think that, you know, every, every, you know, regulator is also a person. They're also an enthusiast. It's also interesting and exciting for, you know, pretty much everyone once you really start to understand it. So uh, people are, you know, should be and are excited uh, about the future of technology. So, yeah. Okay, let's talk about digital identity. This obviously has a, a, a deep connection to, to regulation, but establishing digital identity has always been has been for a while now pretty crucial to your your vision of the future when did you work out that digital identity matters i, I asked that because i came to the, that conclusion myself a bit late in the day when did you first think it was the a crucial part of the answer so we've always kind of looked as like at like i think you know early on in bitcoin like the idea that i have an account or i have this public key like that is a form of my identity right it is like a way to verify that it is myself and I think that's always kind of been the way that I've viewed it um, since the very early days. I think I think when it really became this realization is probably into like 2014 into 16, you know, in that range where we realized that, you know, compliance was getting very, very complicated because there was no regulation. Um, and the best way to solve this, if you look to the future of how decentralized systems might evolve, you know, this identity component would actually unlock pretty much everything. Um, you know, it, it would solve so many problems in the traditional world as well as the digital world um, that, you know, it is the end all be all. The question is, can you do it in a privacy preserving way or are you uh, enabling governments to have more control than, you know, uh, you might want, right? Um, and so I think there's the balance there and that's where the fight's always been in my mind. But um, no, I think it's from the beginning and that's kind of the reason why we started Shift was that we recognize that once we can get identity right, whether that's identity of a business, a government, an institution of any size, any sorts, doesn't matter, public, private, or a user, once you can enable that digitally, you have this form of representation. And that representation now allows us to make smart contracts work, allows for digital payments to work, things like Bitcoin transactions or other types of stablecoin payments. We can start to automate the functions of how the world works but we need a format of identity. Like you need a way of establishing record of who everything and everyone is. Um, it's the basis of everything that we do in the world today, right? Uh, and so I think that's kind of the concept and how we've looked at it. The question then has always been, I think for the last 10 years, we've noticed that identity systems haven't worked. And the reason is in our view, at least that identity doesn't work because you need something that's 10 times better than what we have today. You know, the card in my pocket works. You know, unless, of course, you're in a country that has no identity, in which case that's a different story. Um, then it's about accessibility and, you know, does the Internet support uh, people in that, that part of the world? Um, but in at least the Western world, the question is, like, how do you make a product or service so much better that it's usable from an identity perspective digitally? And I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, I do think regulation is a, a forcing function. So regulations have a funny way of forcing usage and adoption of certain technologies uh, and certain use cases. And I do think that's where identity ends up is this kind of forced introduction to society. Um, that's kind of the roadmap that we've taken a shift. But um, but yeah, it's always been like a, a top of mind, I would say. Um, and uh, yeah, the question is doing it securely and safely for people. Is that your explanation of why the take up of digital identity has been so limited so far? Because I think 
once you get digital identity, you understand how many problems it could solve, not just the problems you've described in the in the cryptocurrency and DeFi industries, but actually many of the problems which I take the FATF recommendations on money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent by financial institutions all over the planet. You know, digital identity could fix that properly conceived and, and properly set up and, and enforced, I guess, by regulations and, and standards. But is that the problem? It just, it's not good enough yet. Our, our, our practice of digital identity I think it's a question of it's the practice. It's well, first of all, it's the implementation. Governments aren't technology companies. They're not the fastest in the world at implementing, uh, implementing most things. Um, that's just the function of how a government works. They're a bit slower. Um, and it's also like, yeah, like what is the use case that actually people are going to stick to, right? Other than it being a forced requirement, um, you know, uh, which is the only way that I see it probably realistically working. Um, but yeah, I think that is what it is, is that it's just, it hasn't, and there's a suite of privacy problems that I do think, you know, governments struggle with. And, you know, rightfully so citizens, I think in this time and age, you know, should be, you know, cautious in, in those types of systems, right? Um, you know, uh, it, it's a, don't forget that once identity and digital technologies are in, in, embedded in a society, they never leave. So, you know, you might have a great democracy today, but the world changes and it changes quickly. And soon enough, you have someone in power and some in a, that it might not be as, um, you know, uh, uh, kind or, or thoughtful in the way that those technologies are used. Uh, and, and if that's the case, do you really want them in control of an, uh, an identity system that may or may not be tracking civilians, right? And so there's these kind of moral and fundamental questions, I think, that do come along with it as well. Um, but yeah. But you can, I'm right to think you can build privacy, you can build anonymity into a digital identity system. In other words, it solves that fundamental yep. problem which you've just said governments are facing how right. do they balance privacy and you know identity yes yes we definitely can and that's also why i think like the the implement i i think that's kind of why my assumption is that most great technologies i think over the last 20 years you know you look at payment systems you look at video streaming you look at a lot a lot of the technologies they've come from the internet right they haven't come from governments adopt like enabling them and and i tend to think that you know digital currencies are very much in that same capacity right um and so i i have this tendency to believe that identity will come from that as well uh it just won't be in the same oh it's being organically spun up in the way that video streaming may have been or, or payments uh it, it may be more from this regulatory requirements on digital companies or digital technology or, or digital currency companies to uh, to to require it to be um, so that's kind of just my perspective but now let's talk a bit about how shift goes about doing this as mm -hmm. i understand it shift builds an identity infrastructure it then writes smart contracts that implement the requirements for a particular identity use case the term you used uh, what do you mean by uh, an identity infrastructure is it a kind of are you building here like an ecosystem of multiple networks or are you building a single network it, so it's one network. I think the it's one it's it's one public it's one blockchain and it's a a series a very robust set of smart contracts and those smart contracts were designed to not sit on one blockchain but were meant to effectively almost sit across multiple uh, in order to 
network together. Um, so the goal being that you might have something on the shift network uh, as a blockchain, you might have uh, those contracts sitting on Ethereum, on, on Phantom, mm -hmm. on all these different protocols. And, and the goal is really to provide what we call uh, a, a, an identity attestation. So this kind of this, this metadata um, confirmation and this metadata transaction, this, this transaction that occurs on a blockchain today um, is not financial in nature. It's actually, you know, a set of data or a packet of data, a packet of information. And that information is uh, acting as almost like a pointer saying there's, this is the time, this is the source, this is, you know, uh, a pseudo anonymous uh, kind of um, registry or indicator of some event that's happened, like someone issuing an ID, like maybe it's, you know, so-and-so's ID, it happens to be Joseph, but that's of course, you know, privacy preserved. Uh, and the goal is to effectively enable that across multiple networks, as I had mentioned, but then also enable use cases that utilize and, and kind of uh, aggregate these identity formats um, into many different kind of avenues. So uh, if you think of DeFi and, and compliance in that in that domain, uh, or CeFi and compliance in that domain, the ability to kind of network these two vastly kind of different, um, you know, places and kind of industries together would be an example of that kind of meshing or aggregation of, uh, of identity sources together. Um, so it is really this, this way of of proving things on a network using a network for for coordination more so it's not like you're putting you know joseph weinberg on a on the blockchain as it's immutable and, and that's a huge privacy violation but it, it's kind of providing the proof and putting the proofs where they need to be that in fact you know uh, an identity has been created or a travel rule transaction by binance has been initiated or a government has in fact verified some form of identity uh, with the identity information being private, right? And so um, that's kind of the way that, you know, the shift like architecture and kind of stack is is designed today. So if your identity infrastructure is going to be that flexible, does that mean it has to be open, i.e. anyone can can be part of it, could, be, could join it? Or is your infrastructure going to be closed? You're going to invite people to join it? Or is it going to be some mixture of those two things? In other words, it's open, but you set some sort of membership criteria which is it is it open is it closed or is it hybrid yeah so so we have like different formats and we look at this in a few different ways right and it's really dependent on the use case to be honest um in the case of of the travel rule you know which is more of a decentralized version of swift simplest way to kind of put that um we do like you do need a form of onboarding because you need to verify that binance is really binance and not pretending to be binance um, so that would be one example. Um, and so in the case of other more open identity systems, the way that some parts of shift, uh, were designed were such that they can, uh, if they aren't open, they can actually, um, interact with systems or, uh, you know, uh, other versions of shift that are open. So you kind of get this kind of symbiosis by way of, this might be a closed registry or closed set of information or closed kind of, you know, uh, entity registry uh, or user registry, but it can also interact with this open registry that sits on a different network, for example. Um, so it really depends on kind of what the use case is. Um, but Shift is a public layer blockchain is an open system. The smart contracts have permissions in some cases and no permissions in others. Mm -hmm. A term you you use is trust anchor. 
Can you explain to us exactly what you mean by trust anchor? Yeah, so the concept of a trust anchor is one uh, where you are effectively an entity. And, and the way that we looked at identity was that it's very, very unlikely that users would, you know, this, this self-sovereign identity concept, which is one where you as a user hold, host, and store all of your user data. Um, it's a nice idea. I think no one is like that. Um, in most cases, that's just not going to happen. It's not a reality. And so the concept that, that was designed was this concept of a trust anchor, which is one where we have an institution, let's say it's a bank, maybe it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a Google or someone else. Uh, and they are really these custodians of data and trust anchors are, are, are effectively these, these custodians of data. Uh, and they can be multiple and in, and, and, and many and, and in different shapes, forms and sizes, regulated, unregulated, depending on the use case. Um, but a trust anchor is there to effectively bind these like attestations. They're there to write the proofs, the events that in fact, Joseph has an ID or that in fact, I've verified this user or I've, 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 uh, I've done some sort of voting system in the case of a government or there, a vote has been made. So the idea of a, of a trust anchor is just a way of formulating an entity uh, on a public blockchain on, on a smart contract effectively. Uh, I'm a bit disappointed you're, you're, you've, you've been negative about self-sovereign uh, digital identities um, because I think you're saying that you don't think people will want to own and control and consent their own data. They'll want to hand this over to a, to a third party, in, in this case, like a, a, a trust anchor. Um, I've always rather liked the idea of consumers kind of upending capitalism by owning their data, but I think I suspect you're right. Uh, yeah. I'm not really so what, what happens, though, with these you've got these these new intermediary institutions who are going to be in effect controlling the data of of the consumer um how's that, how's that relationship going to work with the consumer yeah i mean i think the reality is is like we kind of just looked at this on like a practical level of you know who holds our data today it's not us right mm -hmm. um what i do right. think is you know, it's it's not. Yeah. Um, what I do think is important is providing more accessible controls for the user to be able to understand where their data is going, uh, to be able to maybe make more uh, decisions uh, on what happens to that data. Uh, and I think that that's the relationship that trust anchors and users end up taking in the long term and, you know, over a 10 year period, mm -hmm. unless you're in a regulated, you know, financial institution setting where there's compliance requirements. Um, but I do think that it's really this, it becomes a world where the institutions that are already holding your data, they're there for convenience or they're there because they're providing you a service and they need your data. That's fair. Um, you should be able to make it easier to transmit that data between other institutions, other you know uh, custodians for the services that me as the user are trying to access. Um, but me as the user has more control in saying, Yes, you know, uh, Bank A, I'm comfortable with you moving my data to, uh, you know, Shopify because it's something that I'm trying to sign up for as a service. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, th that type of, I think, entity to user relationship, I think, continues. Uh, I just think that the granularity and the controls that the user has uh, is, is what it yeah, it enhances from an experience perspective, if that makes sense, uh, yeah. if you will. So the, the trust actors have to come up with a better user experience so that it's easy for people to, when they go shopping, in effect, click one button, but when they apply for a passport or buying an airline ticket, they, they click it on. It needs to be easy for them, right? 
Exactly. And it, it's, it's not, yeah. And it needs to be one where, you know, you do have more control as the customer, as the user, but it's like, you know, you're not going to just hand me holding all my data. I don't even know how it would work and saying, Oh, sign up for this airline and somehow move all of your, my grandma could never do that. Uh, and the way that we always try to build technology is to think about like, could my grandmother figure this out? If not, like, probably not the uh, the best thing to build <laughs> um, for a for a wider market that is right so okay now uh, another thought occurs to me uh, as we're discussing the problems of making digital identity work how I, do i understand the shift in such a correctly it's a federated model in other words you, you know you go to the data you bring rather than going and fetching the data and bringing it back and then having a look at it you just kind of go and get what you need when you need it and that is a better protection for, for privacy and confidentiality of data. In fact, you don't even need to know who that data pertains to. That's what I think of as a, as a federated model. Is that what the shift network is? So it's a bit different. So there's a few layers of federation. So the public blockchain, you can think of it as, uh, which is kind of like a, a side chain. It's, it's, a, it's a modified version of Ethereum. That is what is secured in a system called a federated system. Uh, that means that you have a group of nodes. Those nodes are membership driven. So the nodes control the network. They are basically given proposals on, you know, expanding that federation, adding more nodes or, you know, reducing the federation. Uh, and this is an alternative to proof of work or proof of stake. Um, what we found is that when it comes to use cases like identity, there's very, very particular requirements that we have. We need to be able to scale the transaction the transaction throughput of a network very quickly as an example we need to make sure as another example that identities aren't rolled back there's actually a world where transactions in ethereum or bitcoin can actually do what's called like a uh, like a rollback so you can actually like lose the history in a block reorganization on a blockchain such that like the identity that I created is no longer there. And that's not a very good situation, you know, for a, for a, for an identity. Um, and so uh, shift is a public blockchain was designed to solve for these types of attributes, but also maintaining a uh, high censorship resistance. And that's the way that we look at decentralization is it's not the number of nodes that you have in a network. It's about, is this network resistant to attacks? And is it, is, it, is it censorship resistant to, you know, someone coming in and trying to, you know, overtake the network, change its characteristics and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's the purpose of that. Um, however, if you think of trust anchors and you think of things like a travel rule use case, all of the, the exchanges really do become federated insofar as, you know, as long as there's an onboarding process, they can all be added into that system. You need to be able to trust that this exchange is really this exchange and it's not someone coming in trying to steal data from Binance. Um, so there, it, Shift kind of takes this like federation on top of federation system model <clears throat> where everything is in effect a form of federation. Um, it's just more open in some dimensions, more closed. Some have more governance, some have less. So um, we've kind of really kind of tried to innovate around this, this, this federation model. Um, so it's not only on the identity side is the point I'm making. I pick you up on that, that throughput point, which is a new one on me. I, I'd, I'd kind of assumed uh, possibly stupidly that digital identity was always going to work well with with blockchain networks but i think you've just been saying that actually one of the problems that technology presents is if you're going to have a workable digital identity so it needs to have high throughput high speed high scalability 
Is yes. that that is an issue? Is it? Yeah, like you want to make sure that the identity that you created is actually there, right? And and I think that we have this concept of like, yes, block reorganizations are real and they do happen. In the event of a government trying to issue a birth certificate, it's not a very good approach if it's going to accidentally disappear one out of every thousand, right? Or one out of every hundred or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that's like a real problem. And I think the second thing is like identity and the data and that is being attributed to it it's a lot of interactions, right? You need to be able to scale. And, and I think it's more of this question of like, like we always try to think from a design and architecture perspective, like what are you building for, right? Like like Bitcoin and, and arguably Ethereum, they really try to build this system where that the as distribution is everything, as decentralized as possible from an open nodes perspective, I can run it on my phone is the goal. And, and uh, it doesn't compute quickly, but it's, it's this security layer for everyone. Uh, in the case, when you're looking at like very purpose-based systems like Shift, Shift is focused on identity. So we're looking at solving the problems that obtain, uh, adhere to identity-related issues and the governance and, 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 and data kind of coordination problems that we have. And, and in that world, we need to look at the exact problem sets. And so Shift is specifically designed for that. Um, it, it does also sit inside of Tor, uh, which probably sounds a bit um, uh, uh, interesting. But again, another design decision is like, how do you mitigate, you know, attacks against the network? Uh, so we use things like the Tor network to secure and, and obfuscate uh, the nodes of, of shift and things like that. So there's a variety of other enhancements. And the smart contracts that are being written for these particular use cases, who's writing them? Is that you or the users make it up using components you give them? No. So yeah, so the initial core team, Shift Labs or Shift Core, um, they actually initially designed them. Uh, they've been designed over kind of the last three or four years uh, in kind of different phases and different components. Um, that team is kind of the, what we look at is like the smart contract team directly. And so they're working on, uh, you know, they finish a certain segment, they issue that out or they push out that, that, that deployment uh, to a certain project team. So maybe the Veriscope travel rule team would utilize a few components of a certain set of smart contracts. Uh, but that smart contract team, that kind of lab's core team is there to uh, ensure that those contracts are done properly and safe for users before the application layer and middleware layer and, and kind of those teams start to kind of build on top of them. Uh, that's the case for DeFi as well. So it's a pretty big uh big operation, I would say at this point. And is security an issue with the smart contracts? Yeah, we always are very, very conscious of it. It's it's kind of one of the reasons that, you know, Shift is probably one of the slowest deployers, I think, in the space today. Um, we're not one of these teams that says kind of, you know, push things out and like hope it works, you know, move fast, break things. I think that like mantra works uh, in the old web two world, but in this world you lose money uh, and a lot of it if it's not done properly. Uh, so we take kind of like security and audits incredibly seriously and, and we're very slow and, and careful. Uh, at least the core teams are that work across it um, in this area. So security is definitely an issue. Um, but it is less of an issue because these are not all financial asset contracts, right? So if it's a data attribution contract or it's a registry, it's not as big of a worry that someone's going to hack that as, you know, a DeFi pool with a billion dollars in assets in it, right? So it's kind of just, you got to think of the trade-offs in security as well. Mm -hmm. 
You've mentioned the travel ruler a number of times, and it is a, it's a very obvious case for the application of, of digital identities, which of course have been imposed on the uh, cryptocurrency and DeFi industries, I think October 2018. So we're four years on from when this was first uh, set out by the FATF. And I understand you've developed a service, Veriscope, uh, to help the, the cryptocurrency and DeFi industries accommodate travel. How, how does that work? Yeah, so it's um, it's an interesting one. So we we kind of got a bunch of the exchanges together in 2018 and 2019, and it, and it kind of comprised of probably like 20 to 30 of the largest exchanges globally at that time. So Binance and Bitfinex and Tether and a lot of the global ones, not so much of the US ones. Uh, and we actually kind of co-designed the solution. And the, the goal was to build an open source system, uh, one that would rely on smart contracts, as we've talked about, uh, and kind of open uh, blockchains and kind of this open source ethos to effectively build this kind of federated decentralized system for effectively carrying out these SWIFT-like transactions. And of course, the travel rule is the requirement for us to move user data, PII, prior to every crypto transaction that occurs between regulated intermediaries, what we call virtual asset service providers or VASPs. Um, and so uh, really what Shift does is it acts as this data coordination and discovery layer. And this discovery layer is used by exchanges who are trying to figure out, okay, let's say I'm Binance, I'm, my user is about to make a withdrawal of Bitcoin. How do we know who controls the address that I'm about to send this Bitcoin to? That's kind of the concept in Swift is like, you know, Joseph sends payment, you know, uh, where does it go? Um, and we need the, the user's data and the user's details. Uh, and so uh, Shift kind of takes this coordination role where you write that transaction into the network, it broadcasts that request. This is Binance, we're broadcasting this request. Who has information on this address? Uh, maybe it's, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, it's Coinbase or someone else says, hey, that's me, this is Coinbase. And then they respond securely uh, off of shift. So outside of the network, they then do this kind of back and forth to move user data. Um, but it's incredibly powerful because like we, we need a system that is open and not one that is controlled by exchanges, right? Like, it's very hard to enter into a system that is going to move the most sensitive data that we have, financial transaction data and PII, you know, cross-jurisdictionally to over 200 countries prior to every transaction this needs to occur. And we need to do this in a way that is fast and that doesn't erode the user experience of crypto. Um, and so it's a very, very complex challenge. And I would say it's probably the hardest technology problem that the industry has ever faced since its existence today. Um, so we've really tried to kind of build for the future of that and, and try to keep it as open and fair as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the ways you're, you're progressing is by forming partnerships or alliances with, with established firms. I understand you've got one in place with a law firm in DLA Piper. You've got one in place with a, with a payments uh, service provider, WorldPay. Yep. What are those, how do those relationships work and what are those two particular instances I've mentioned uh, what are they going to lead to? Yeah, so uh, when it comes to onboarding in the network, as you had asked, uh, is it closed or is it open, you had asked. Um, when it comes to you being an exchange, right, um, it's really important that we understand, is this really Binance? And so someone like a DLA Piper that is, you know, the second or third, just, third largest law firm in the world, 
uh, you know, they have, you know, uh, jurisdiction pretty much everywhere. Um, they're a very, very good, uh, you know, partner to have when it comes to doing attribution or attestation, verifying that this is in fact Binance in, you know, Abu Dhabi or in Canada or wherever. Um, and so the role of, of, of DLA Piper is twofold. One, they act as a part of the federation. They run nodes on behalf of the network. The second thing that they do is they provide these attestations to verify and confirm that the identity information of the exchange or the entity is in fact who they say they are. So they're really providing this like, you know, identification and verification service on top of the public protocol. Um, in the case of WorldPay, it's it's similar in some respects. Um, so one of the kind of uh, the, the use cases that we have with WorldPay is, well, they're acting as a federation member as well. Uh, so they're running nodes on top of the network to secure and support the network. Um, and then the second thing is what we're doing with them are, a few projects that we uh, can't announce yet, um, but we're working through kind of currently, but they do revolve around the travel rule. Um, we have partnerships with them and a lot of the exchanges that they process payments for. And of course, they're also owned by FIS, which is the, I think, largest, you know, payments and, and, and financial services aggregator in the world. And so yeah. uh, we're working on a few other kind of projects with uh, with the FIS side as well and trying to understand kind of what the future of, you know, the, the ecosystem looks like with these big institutions kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, really entering and how to kind of work together on that side. So a few other things as well. In establishing is this person or this entity who they say they are have you found legal entity identifiers these leis of any value it's a great question um we're looking more at them um we think that there is a world where they definitely work um like there's jurisdictions in the world today for example that have closed registries and so if you're in a country or jurisdiction that has a closed registry it's very hard to know if you're actually regulated there because the information is not public Mm -hmm. I think LEIs are a very good way of solving that uh, type of uh, corporate identity problem. Uh, I think we'll see them more adopted over the next few years. I hope to see them in the travel rule side soon as well, at least in these like certain particular use cases initially. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, really good, useful tool to kind of enabling it. Um I think we just need more adoption of it and, and it needs to be more clearly defined as a standard as it pertains to how it works within the crypto world, I'd say, or the digital asset world uh, specifically. So, mm -hmm. Joseph, one last question for you. As you said at the outset, you've been involved with Bitcoin since I think 2010, you said. So you've been at this for more than a decade. You've been in this industry a long time, longer than most of us and indeed probably most people who are more deeply involved than I am. Are you more optimistic now about uh, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, DeFi, the, the original vision, if you like, going back more than a decade? Are you more confident that vision will come to fruition now than you were five, 10 years ago? It's a great question. Um, uh, so, I mean, I've always kind of been somewhere in between. I mean, I think there's these very, very, very aggressive proponents who take this position that, you know, everything should be privacy first and anonymization over everything. That was never the camp that I was in. Um, I do believe that like Bitcoin is solving this very important requirement of, of this kind of like reserve asset function that is free from central, you know, control. Mm -hmm. I do think Bitcoin actually is, 
you know, cutting through all the narratives, I do think that it is executing on that. And I think that's a very, very important thing to have for humanity. And I do think that that is working and continues and will continue to work. Um, but I was never shy to the fact that like, I'm a technologist, I'm not a Bitcoin only Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, you know, I'm a realist. Uh, and so my perspectives have always been that like, you know, Bitcoin is good for these things. Other technologies must be good for other things. Right. And that's kind of why we did things like shift. You know, we were early adopters in Ethereum. You know, we're we're from Canada and and, and spent a lot of many years in Toronto when kind of the, the digital asset ecosystem was growing. And we were there kind of when, when Ethereum was being founded. And we were always big, you know, uh, you know, fans of that as well, because we recognize that like, decentralization and what that means is different to different places and use cases and and the more things we can eliminate this this centralized intermediary control i think in some cases the better so i've always been this 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 um of the ideology that like you know these systems are good and they need to permeate all different places um I don't think Bitcoin will replace the dollar, though. I don't think that's going to happen. So um, I will be surprised. I mean, but I have been surprised before. So I don't think Bitcoin will replace the dollar. I think we kind of thought that maybe very early on. I was like 19 at the time, I think, or 20. So, um, you know, as uh, we grow older, we kind of realize that, you know, maybe not quite that. But I do think the role in its place in the world will be incredibly impactful. And uh, and it's that's happening every day, right? We're seeing that happen. Uh, it's just slow. So. Yeah, I suspect the Federal Reserve is more concerned about the digital yuan replacing the the dollar. But I think Joseph, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Joseph Weinberg, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to Future of Finance. Thanks so much for having me, Dom. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Mm -hmm.